Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm James Long, an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington. For today's podcast, we will address the question, is our cancel culture killing free speech? This is the title of an op-ed published in the Seattle Times on August 7th by Victor Minaldo. Victor is a professor of political science at the University of Washington, and along with myself and Rachel Heath, a co-organizer of the Political Economy Forum. Victor has an extensive research agenda examining democracy and capitalism historically and in the modern world. But of course, underpinning these political and economic systems are liberal values and practices, including the critical role of free speech, assembly, and conscience. We are lucky to have Victor here today to talk about these issues and his op-ed. Hello, Victor. Hi, James. Thanks. Joining Victor today, we have three special guests to the podcast. First, I'd like to introduce Jamie Mayerfeld, a professor of political science at the University of Washington. Jamie is a political theorist who has taught courses on freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and other topics on human rights. And his latest book is The Promise of Human Rights. Hello, Jamie. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Next, I'd like to introduce Susan Whiting, an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington and a faculty affiliate of the Political Economy Forum. Susan studies the political economy of development in China, and her next book is entitled Illiberal Law and Development. Hello, Susan. Hi, James, Victor, and everybody. Great to be here. And finally, I'd like to introduce Brian Leung, a PhD student in political science at the University of Washington. In addition to his academic work in political economy and comparative politics, Brian is a Hong Kong democracy activist who became an icon of the 2019 Hong Kong's anti-extradition movement after reading a statement on behalf of protesters at the Legislative Council in Hong Kong. Welcome, Brian. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, let's get started. I'd like to start with Victor. Victor, in your op-ed, you asked the question, is our cancel culture killing free speech? Tell us your motivation for posing this question and then briefly how you answer it in the essay. Well, I have many motivations, some personal, some academic. I think I'll just remind everybody of the personal reasons. And then maybe in our conversation, some of the academic reasons might come out. The personal reasons are about my uh, background in Latin America. Both my parents are immigrants from Latin America and my living experiences in Latin America during my childhood and also during research, uh, doing field work in Latin America for my dissertation and other projects. And basically what I witnessed in Latin America informs, I suppose, my interest and passion for this topic. I could mention a, a welter of experiences, but I'll mention two that have really been resonant with me over the years. The first is uh, while growing up in, in Mexico uh, during the 1980s, it was ex an extremely repressive dictatorship, uh, very corrupt, um, practiced crony capitalism, uh, the drug uh, situation in terms of being a huge, a big transit point for uh, drug trafficking to the US was big at the time. But one thing that folks don't realize that much about Mexico's uh, one-party state is that free speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of conscience and expression was clamped down on uh, and censorship was very uh, strong. 
And this had a big effect during the earthquake in 1985 when the government, rather than helping people who were trapped in the rubble or helping uh, folks get back on their feet or just doing the basic stuff that a government should do during a natural disaster, it spent most of its time censoring the media or shutting it down uh, and persecuting and oppressing the people who uh, were vic the victims of the earthquake and were just asking for help and, and for their basic rights to be respected. Uh, and so that, as a child, really struck me, and, and I was very aware of it, that there was something terribly wrong with the society and uh, rotten, and the way it expressed itself was in censoring and repressing uh, regular uh, people from speaking their mind and for just asking for basic things. It wasn't anything that complicated. Another experience I had uh, while doing field work in Venezuela in uh, 2009 and 2010 was the Chavista regime, Hugo Chavez, and I got to experience his repression against speech and assembly and, and expression. And that took the form of uh, my parents-in-law at the time were teachers when I was doing field work and I was staying with them for a while. Uh, and the, the Chavista goons um, basically they showed up at their school and they tore up all the textbooks that they were using and demanded that they used Bolivarian uh, socialist revolution textbooks, even for math, uh, and try to change the curriculum and uh, pretty much try to dictate what was to be learned henceforth. Uh, th that was complemented by repression of the media and repression against uh, freedom of assembly and protest. And just to see the terror in the eyes of teachers at the school in terms of um, these demands uh, that were placed on them and, and this change in the curriculum from one day to another uh, was scary and again, set off alarm bells. So that's my motivation. Personally, I could talk about the academic motivation later if you'd like. Quickly then on what the op-ed was about. It's about the United States. It's not really about the, these international experiences, but the purpose of it is to remind folks that there's a long tradition, uh, a left of center tradition of support for free speech, freedom of conscience, and freedom of assembly in the United States. And one example I give is the ACLU defending skinheads' rights to march and spew their hate and lies, not because they agreed with or endorsed what the skinheads had to say, but because they thought it was important for the American experiment in self-government and in liberal democracy. And there's an equally long tradition that I spell out in the op-ed of uh, reactionary forces trying to silence and suppress speech. And a prominent example uh, is during the McCarthy era, mass hysteria and persecution of anyone uh, who was even suspected of harboring so-called communist sympathies with that being a very elastic term and being used by folks to go after their enemies or people they didn't like even. I guess in the op-ed, I'm trying to remind folks that it's important to remember why that tradition is important from the left of center perspective. And that the culture of free speech and free expression, not just its legal protections matter because it actually, that this culture helps advance progressive and liberal goals like freedom, equality, justice, and science. And so why is that the case? In the op-ed, I just have a very basic argument that's pragmatic. It, 
it allows us as, as individuals room to improve and not be afraid to speak our mind, to make mistakes and to learn from them in back and forth dialogues with others. It allows us to give others the benefit of the doubt, not assume the worst in others or their worst intentions when they say things that might offend us or might be wrong or, or just plain awkward. And then I also lay out the case for social progress advance uh, through a culture of free speech because it leads to openness and curiosity, skepticism, and especially with science, the ability to articulate and test unorthodox hypotheses that are very important for social progress. And I try to make the case that a tolerance for unorthodox ideas and experimentation including for irreverence and transgression, are important for social progress, uh, not only for science, actually, but for art and just for normal human sanity and well-being. Finally, I, I make the case that liberalism and science are predicated uh, on intellectual humility. Nobody knows everything. And a culture of free speech allows us to make mistakes, to learn from others. It creates a context where we can change our mind based on facts, logic, evidence and persuasion and not coercion and fear. Liberalism ultimately, I argue, is not about latching on to predetermined means or a political agenda per se, but to trying to advance worthy goals that like equality, progress and justice and open debate and constructive criticism allows us to optimize those means and listening to critics and being open to criticism is actually good for us because it allows us to be more effective in pursuit of those ends. And finally, I argue that censoring speech drives bad and morally bankrupt ideas underground. It creates a black market for these ideas. They don't go away. Just censoring ideas doesn't destroy the demand for them, let's say, or, or the curiosity about them. Uh, and they will fester, spread, or even become stronger if they're driven underground. So we might as well hear about them even if we don't want to. And free speech is an instrument to let them come out and to maybe not contain them, but at least push back against them through uh, open dialogue. So I could say a lot more both about motivation and about the logic, the uh, instrumental logic of why I think free speech is important. But I really want to hear from everyone else, and especially what, what you have to say as well. Thanks. Thanks, Victor. I want to get Jamie in on this. And Jamie, I think one of the things that Victor brings up, which is a really important point, both in the US context, but also comparatively, is this question of freedom of speech as a right um, you know, inscribed. And, and, and I think we would all agree that free speech, in terms of the First Amendment in the United States, is not under attack as such. Um, but then there's the culture of free speech. And I'm wondering from your perspective and from a human rights perspective, is that distinction important? Is that relevant? Does that help us understand anything, either in the US context or just kind of more generally? Or is one of the, you know, is, is the focus on the cultural part of free speech or the ability, the, the actual realized ability to speak freely? Yes, it can be legally inscribed, but that's not really the important question that we should be asking. We should be focused instead on whether or not that we have cultural values that support that freedom or whether or not the, the ability to exercise that freedom is potentially harmful in certain ways. Thanks, James. Uh, and I want to start out by uh, thanking people for including me in this really interesting conversation. And I will get to your question. Uh, I guess I do want to say that, you know, I agree quite substantially with Victor's arguments, both in the original op-ed 
uh, and in his remarks just now, there may be a small area of disagreement and we can talk about that and that will be interesting. But in terms of your question, James, I think um, that free speech is a fundamental value. Uh, I think most people would agree. And I think it's both a legal value and a cultural value. And I think we need to be afraid of both legal restrictions on free speech and also non-legal restrictions on free speech, uh, social uh, sanctions, behavior by ordinary individuals uh, that takes the form of punishing speech that is regarded as unacceptable or odious. And I think that's a really important point. And here the thinker that I think is helpful is John Stuart Mill, who's the author of the classic work on liberty. And I've taught that book for <laughs> every year for about uh, almost 30 years. And the book is often cited, uh, but, not often cite, but not always cited correctly. And a lot of people who invoke uh, Mill's book in defense of freedom of speech miss uh, one of his really important and central claims. And Mill says quite emphatically right from the very beginning that free speech is a value and that it has to be protected both from legal sanctions but also from social sanctions. And he talks about all the different ways in which people can punish other people without resort to the law or without resort to physical violence. Um, they can threaten people, they can ostracize people, they can boycott people, um, they can fire people from their jobs, they can exclude them from uh, places. So that's really relevant now to the debates uh, about cancel culture, because the critics of cancel culture are not, in, in the US context, are not primarily worrying about um, the use of the law to punish certain kinds of speech, but they're worried about um, the actions that people on social media might take that that could be punitive in character or employers firing employees or um, people uh, threatening various kinds of reprisals and so uh, i think that's that's really helpful well let me let me ask you to let me ask a follow-up on that which is how does mill help us think about i mean let's just look at twitter cancel culture right. like at what point is me tweeting about how much I don't like Victor's op-ed, a uh, true expression of million free speech versus you, I'm expressing it, but in ways that are social sanctioning or social shaming that would, that would violate Mill's principles. I mean, do we have, do you think we have clear guidelines on that or a way to think about it? So thanks for asking the question, because that's the obvious question and that's the important question. It's also the difficult question. And so to go back to Mill, Mill was very aware of that. And so what he wants to do in his work, and I'm just, I mean, I'm citing it because I just think it's helpful, is he says, look, we have to make this very important distinction between criticism on the one hand, and let's call it coercion or punishment on the other hand. And he says, if you hear speech that you think is mistaken or offensive or wrong, um, it's appropriate to criticize it, but it's rarely, if ever, appropriate to punish it. So the, the key distinction there then again is between criticism and coercion. And he's aware that it's often a difficult distinction to trace. He has a lot to say about what he has in mind by the distinction. I think that's the question we all should be asking, because I think it's a, a theoretically challenging question. But you know, we can say a few things. Uh, firing somebody from their job, that's coercive. What about social media? That's where it gets really hard. Criticizing somebody, that's, you know, saying you're wrong because of, I disagree with you because of X, that's criticism. 
what you said is really stupid, that's also criticism. <laughs> now, criticism can get gradually more and more pointed, you know, it can be, you know, but it's, that's when, the, it, that's when it becomes interesting and challenging. But certain kinds of social media responses, I think, are punitive. So if you tweet, if you send a tweet to someone's boss and say, I think this guy should be fired because of what they said, I think that crosses the line from criticism to punitive speech or punitive behavior. Doxing, you know, that would be also coercive and punitive. Well, so I like this, this idea of criticism versus coercion, and I like thinking about it comparatively. So I want to bring in Susan. Susan, you study China, which is a country sort of at the extreme of, of maybe not making this distinction ever clear. For, first of all, is that true? But second of all, how, how are this balancing criticism and coercion even understood in other contexts today with the exercise of free speech in, in countries like China? Also, I want to start by saying um, thanks for including me in the conversation. It's a really important conversation. I really appreciate um, learning from all you guys. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Like, like, so China is a quite extreme case of very strong state that penetrates society very effectively and uh, that has a, it, it, just building on what Jamie just said about this balance between criticism on the one side and coercion or punishment on the other, pretty coercive approach to um, monitoring and policing speech. You can think, and, and of course at, at great cost, most famously this year, the censorship of Dr. Li Wenliang in raising alarms about COVID-19 and um, this new virus, right? So, so the response was delayed because his voice was silenced. And so, so clearly the, the cost of that, something that Victor points out in his, his op-ed is really high. There are other places where the cost is um, maybe not as obvious, but, but we still see these um, a quite coercive approach. Um, for example, the removal of professors from the classroom because of their speech. And again, we've got examples this year. Um, uh, I'm thinking of Xu uh, Zhang Run, um, who's been fired from Tsinghua University for uh, a whole range of, of speech. Most recently, um, his criticism of the secrecy and censorship around COVID-19 specifically. But Earlier, his criticism regarding the end of term limits for the, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the emergence of a cult of personality. So, um, yeah, we can see lots of examples in um, the case of this one party regime of really on the coercive punishment side of the dichotomy that or the continuum rather that Jamie just posed. So I think we can clearly see the harms. Um, but but it's such an extreme case. I'm I'm not sure how far it gets us in in thinking about this in the context of the U.S., um, which is where where um, Victor really weighed in in his op-ed. Victor, you continually say that you're afraid that this is where the U.S. is headed. N not exactly, but the, the, you always use China as the model about what you fear the most, right? I guess you know. Obviously, that's hyperbolic, and it's intended to make a point. You know, it's using the extreme example as a precautionary tale. What is the probability we're going to head towards a culture revolution? I don't know. It's probably not high. But just the fact that it's north of zero worries me. And because, you know, it seems like these things are nonlinear. And I'm sorry to use all these jargony terms for social science, but one day there's consensus 
both on the left and right that free speech is a sacred right and it has all these instrumental benefits. And then there's very important loud voices within both camps that start to encroach upon it. And maybe, you know, folks that didn't think too hard about its benefits say, well, I'm just going to conform to this new norm of suppression or censorship or intimidation for things I don't like or offend me because it seems like there's good reasons for it. And, uh, it's in vogue, and I haven't thought too deeply, but my neighbors now are acting a different way, and maybe they have good reasons for it, like to fight racism. You know, that's a noble end. Whether suppressing speech is the way to advance that is a separate issue. It's a question that we could explore as social scientists, but I guess that's what scares me is like a cascade effect where all of a sudden, because human beings tend to be cowardly and also conformists, if they see their neighbors changing their mind or indifferent about protecting these basic rights, you might get McCarthy hearings or persecution of things that are unpopular. And it can happen quickly and, and spread quickly. So should the fear drive public policy and like, should we all be on high alert? Maybe not. Maybe that's left for a few academics like us who have looked internationally and seen the worst extreme cases like Susan in China or myself for the case of Mexico or Venezuela. So I don't necessarily know if I have some universal love, let's fear this and, and, and worry we're going to devolve into the cultural revolution that swept over China. And, and Susan will correct me, 60s and 70s, if I'm correct. But I think part of free speech, actually, in the culture of it is always being scared of that and being OK to raise the alarm because it's hard for everyday people to protect free speech, I think, unless there's powers and numbers like herd immunity, so to speak, right? Uh, because our natural instinct is to fight against things we don't like. And everyone is guilty of it. Nobody is free from this thing that we do, which is react sometimes violently against things that offend us or that seem wrong or taboo. So it's almost like we need to foster the culture and we need a lot of people behind it with a consensus that transcends politics for it to be strong enough to fight off moments where it might be under threat, such as what's happening now, where there are novel ideas about racism or about what professors should be teaching or what should be the goal of a university. Is it the pursuit of truth or is it the pursuit of social justice? And if it's the pursuit of social justice or a mix of truth and social justice, maybe those things are at loggerheads sometimes. Because there are things that are so bad and repugnant and, and taboo that they shouldn't be expressed. And therefore, maybe we should relax free speech in those situations. So I guess I don't feel bad myself about raising the alarm, even if it's a false alarm, because someone's got to do it in order to inoculate ourselves against the possibility that we could get swept up in a, a wave of social panic that might threaten free speech inadvertently. That would be my answer, James. I hope it wasn't too long-winded. Jamie, go ahead. I want to say two things, one in support of uh, Victor and then one maybe in dissent from Victor. James asked Victor whether it was made sense to raise the specter of a highly authoritarian regime like China. Uh, isn't that hyperbolic? And a, a number, you know, in this debate about cancel culture, a number, of, a number of the people who are criticizing those who raise the alarm say, look, there are not that many cases of illegitimate cancel culture. People are exaggerating the danger. But I think it's good that there are people like Victor who are being vigilant. <laughs> um, uh, vigilance is necessary to prevent a small problem from becoming a bigger problem. 
And right now we're having a debate about what the norms should be. And that's very important. As Victor says, sometimes history is nonlinear. Things can change quite quickly. Uh, so the fact that there may be only a small number of, you know, really terrible cases of cancel culture doesn't mean that we shouldn't raise the alarm. I think the small number, we, we, we want to keep it small. Uh, and so that's why we, we should uh, uh, warn our fellow citizens about the danger of having this spread. So um, that was my supportive comment. Uh, I'll just use this opportunity to say where I might have a slight disagreement with Victor, which is, I think that uh, I believe very strongly in the value of, of free speech. And I think Victor has articulated the value of free speech beautifully, both on principled grounds and on instrumental grounds. I just think that's really wonderful about the fact that people have this capacity for speech and can come together as we're doing now as equals and have a dialogue where they try to sort things out together. Uh, and that's, that's really worth protecting. In addition, we do have these punitive instincts, as Victor says, and we really have to stand watch against them. But speech can also be harmful. So let me just, we can use the example of this conversation. We're having this wonderful conversation, but that's because we're all observing certain norms about <laughs> uh, having a polite and respectful conversation. It would be very easy if one of us wanted to be malicious to quickly send this conversation off the rails uh, if we wanted to engage in harmful speech. So harmful speech does exist and it's a problem. Uh, moreover, even in the United States, which has a, a very protective legal regime for free speech, there are limits on free speech. So the law can prohibit threats. Um, it can prohibit um, solicitation to crime. It can also prohibit harassment. And the line between harassment and hate speech is a really pretty fuzzy line. So I think I'm probably more sympathetic than Victor is to the creation of narrowly crafted prohibitions of hate speech. So, I'm, uh, so for example, I think it might have been okay for the jurisdiction in Illinois to prohibit the Nazis from uh, walking in that uh, Chicago suburb, you know, morally speaking. And it's, we can look to the example of most other democracies which have narrowly crafted prohibitions of hate speech. And I don't think that we see those countries tumbling down a slippery slope towards authoritarianism. But Jamie, isn't, I mean, I want to get Susan back on this, but isn't one of the points that I think Victor is making is you don't know where you are in the cultural revolution, maybe until it's too late. And, and I do realize that that is the hyperbolic example and that's extreme, but Susan, do we have a way to think about where, is Victor's retelling of how, you know, where this is headed, is that actually how the cultural revolution unfolded? And is, does that give us a way to think about where we have to start drawing lines and where we have to start making really tough choices? before we wake up and we're all in a kind of a different world than what we expect. First, I, I want to um, echo two things that Jamie said. I, I agree with the, the importance of um, vigilance and the, the voice that Victor's raising and also really strongly support the value of free speech. So I just want to echo those, those two things that Jamie said. And then say two things to respond to, to your query, James. First, I think there's the, the action of the state and the action of members of society. And, um, and one thing that's quite striking about the Chinese case is that first the state is very large and very present um, and it's very active. The, the examples that I gave uh, first about um, you know, the doctor who signaled the alarm about 
the, this novel coronavirus was censored by the state and the local state, that's a, another detail, but censored by the state. And then the professor at a public university was also removed by the, the party state, right? So, so these are state actions and we can think about what the government is doing or the, the state as I'm using that term and members of society. Uh, and if we think about the cultural revolution, right, that was initiated from the top by a party and government actor, right? That's, uh, so, so I think we could think about actions of the government and actions of society. Um, that might be a helpful distinction here. Um, and then I wanted to pick up finally on the point that Jamie made, because where I was headed also was thinking about harm and the notion of harm, right? And, and while the, the premise is really feeling quite strongly about the value, the absolute importance of of free speech, although abs absolute, I should um, temper that perhaps because there is always this notion of harm, which is where Jamie was was leading us, right? And in the classical liberal tradition, the, the notion of harm is quite, quite limited, right? And on the opposite end of the dimension in, in authoritarian regimes, the notion of, of harm is uh, quite expansive and it's defined by the government. Right, so, so you have the government establishing this notion of harm that is anything critical of the ruling party or the leader. I mean, this, this, this a massive realm of not very targeted, very vague uh, notion of harm, right? And um, that leaves a vast distance in the middle, which I think is where Jamie was, was uh, taking us. Well, I want to get Brian in on this. So Brian, you, you've lived the harm um, at, a, at a very visceral level. So I'm interested to hear your experience with sort of the harm of being imposed by the government that uh, Susan is discussing, but also if you can give us a sense in Hong Kong um, how the actions of the government and the actions of society might be different than they are in mainland China. Meaning, is there, is there sort of a, a small L liberal value in free speech and freedom of assembly in, in Hong Kong that may not exist at the governmental level that may make it distinct from what's going on in, in the mainland? Right, thanks for the question. And I also think that Hong Kong provides uh, such an interesting case. It was like an intermediate case between the extreme of, let's say, a full-blown authoritarian country such as China and a relatively like uh, constitutionally secure uh, freedom of speech, uh, you know, people can enjoy freedom of speech in countries such as US, right? Uh, what you are witnessing in the uh, Hong Kong case, uh, as opposed to the victors like Venezuela or Mexican cases, is Hong Kong was used to be free, and it was like slowly deteriorating and crumbling into an unfree society, right? So I think it's interesting to observe how people react to the new reality of a newly imposed, let's say, authoritarian control from China, right? So for example, uh, recently in June, uh, China passed a law that is called National Security Law, where uh, four kinds of uh, categories of behavior uh, were censored. You know, you cannot do act or uh, give speech that is related to secession from the mainland China, or you can't do subversion against the state, uh, you are not allowed to engage in terrorism and collusion with foreign forces, right? And I think to echo what Susan's bringing up, the, the, the idea of harm is extremely expansive in the new legal regime. Chanting a protest slogan could be seen as subverting the state. Chanting uh, or singing a protest song would, would be seen as you know, hurting the feelings or dignity of the modern nation, right? And it could be constructed as illegal in that sense, right? So to me, under the new legal regime and the slowly crumbling of the culture and legal protection of free speech, what I worry the most is really about people's self-censorship, right? If I may add one more item to Victor's bucket list of, you know, reasons to oppose against curtailing free speech, 
is I see how pervasive self-censorship has become in Hong Kong, where once the idea of there are certain limits set by the state, once there are certain boundaries you might not cross, this thought would kind of creep into your mind and you kind of started to self-regulate yourself in every corner, in every realm of your daily life, right? When you post something on social media, you fear about whether you're being watched. When you say something in classroom, uh, as a student or as a, as a teacher, you fear about being uh, watched and you know, snitched by your students or fellows. The idea is like the government doesn't have to coerce you to become uh, obedient, right? But once they institutionalize a culture of self-censorship, I think it's extremely dangerous. So to me, my strongest uh, opposition against the regulation of free speech is really about the culture of self-censorship. I think it facilitates tyranny, it facilitates authoritarianism, it punishes people who dare to speak up because, you know, once the norm of being silent is people will be punished by speaking up and they will be isolated and marginalized. And I think, you know, uh, to echo Victor's point, it really hurts not only instrumentally to, our, to the betterment of our society, but also I think, you know, I think it's a long-term, a long-term damage to a free society once we allow self-censorship to creep in. So Brian, let me ask you, did that start in Hong Kong after residents in Hong Kong started to express free speech and organize more and assemble or did it did it so what's the chicken in the egg there in, gotcha. in terms of people's organizing and mobilizing versus now there's creeping in and, and, and greater uh, authoritarian influence right I think Hong Kong have a long history of uh, being a colonial uh, place under the British rule and during that era it was relatively free in terms of the protection of civil society uh, civil freedom right not to say that we have genuine democracy or whatnot but in society uh, it's, it was pretty free. So people are used to express themselves in terms of like assembly, in terms of protest, in terms of speech and writing, right? But after the transition to the sovereignty, transition of sovereignty back to China, and once we kind of demand more from the government, right? Let's say we want true democracy, we want genuine democracy, uh, China started to strike back by saying that, you know, uh, freedom is not unconditional. Freedom has to be limited there should be boundary to what kind of right you can exercise. Uh, you shouldn't put the logical conclusion of freedom to the extreme. And then they use those reasons to kind of clamp down on our demand of democracy and freedom, right? For example, they, like, they come up with rules that, you know, you can vote for somebody, but we have to pre-screen and select the candidate for you. You can say something as long as it didn't cross the party line. Right? So I think it's a gradual, again, crumbling of our freedom and the state trying to step in uh, more and more once, you know, we put up our demands, right? So I think it's a very back and forth and uh, gradual process. Great. So I, anybody want to jump in? I kind of have a general question for Jamie and Victor, which is, Jamie, you sort of brought up, okay, maybe some times where democracies have limited certain types of speech, particularly hate speech, and they've been okay. And, and I always think of the example, I think it was John Galliano, the fashion designer in France, who had said something anti-Semitic or maybe denying the Holocaust or said something anti-Semitic at a, at a restaurant or a bar and he was overheard. And that, you know, that, that type of speech is, is sanctioned in France, whereas it wouldn't be in the United States. And I wonder how much of this debate is just that the French just have different notions of what free speech is. It's not that they, we all agree about what free speech is culturally or legally, it's just that they, and then we might differ about what restrictions are reasonable. Because, for instance, I think of France as having a very different conception of what freedom of religion is. 
you know, freedom of religion in the United States to me is about the establishment clause. It's about the, the state not establishing a religion. In France, my understanding is freedom of religion is about the lack of display of religious practice and symbols in public life, the divorcing of religion from public life. So therefore, we're, you know, the, the, the headscarf ban in France, whether or not you agree with it, is couched in a different way of understanding what freedom of religion means than it would in the United States, where that could apply to either, wearing a headscarf could be either freedom of, considered freedom of religion or freedom of speech. And so I just wonder across cultures or across countries if that's a part of it and our understanding of what these rights actually fundamentally mean could be different above and, above and beyond how we might restrict those, even if we did agree as to what they meant. Oh, well, thanks. Those are all really interesting questions. So that's right. I mean, you know, in France, officially there's freedom of religion. Uh, and yet there are these laws which, from an American perspective, seem like violations of freedom of religion. First, the law that prohibited girls from wearing headscarves in schools. That's not how the law was framed, but everybody knew that that was the purpose of the law. And then the law that prohibited the full facial veil from being worn anywhere in public. You know, I teach a human rights class, and, and sometimes we talk about those cases, and they make their way up to the European Court of Human Rights, which has ruled in France's favor and said, no, these laws don't violate uh, the, the right to freedom of religion. My own view, it's just my own view, is that the, 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 those decisions aren't persuasive. I, I think that those laws do violate the right to freedom of religion. We can have a long conversation about it. You're right, there's sort of different notions of what freedom of religion means. But uh, I think that uh, the American model of freedom of religion, I think, at, um, when it comes to these issues, is, I think, uh, more helpful. But I do want to go back to uh, Brian's, the really interesting points that Brian made, go back to the issue of speech. Uh, and so I really am struck and sobered by Brian's warnings that um, what might appear as minimal restrictions on free speech can then become instruments of government repression. So for example, in the Hong Kong context, if there's a law prohibiting, and forgive me if I get the example wrong, but if there's a law prohibiting you know, speech that supports terrorism, then that then becomes an opening for the government to repress all kinds of speech that is potentially critical of the government. And then that leads to self-censorship on the part of citizens who are afraid of being arrested. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a danger. Let me just use this opportunity to, to raise the uh, menacing specter from the other side, which is the danger that hate speech can pose to democracy also. So we have lots of historical examples in which the proliferation of hate speech became the prelude to mass persecution, crimes against humanity, even genocide. And so there are well-known examples in the years, and I know you're an Africa specialist, James, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the years leading up to the genocide in Rwanda, there was a lot of hate. Yeah, Jamie, but that was a symptom. That wasn't a cause. I mean, well, I mean, I think maybe the argument against that is that sometimes, you know, there may be a value in a society standing up and saying, look, these kinds of responses are not acceptable, and we will express that in a law that says, no, you cannot have a radio show um, referring to an entire ethnic group as cockroaches or whatever. And then, you know, there are examples from Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia. And then, of course, there are examples from the United States. I mean, if you think about the rape, you know, the generations of racial terror against Blacks in the United States after the Civil War, they were, you know, that was brewed in a, in a context of pervasive hate speech, where you could open any newspaper or go in any speech, and hate speech directed towards Black Americans was just um, 
you know, flowed very freely. That had consequences. Uh, and I think there may be an argument for saying, in order to create a society that protects people from certain kinds of violence and oppression, we're going to limit certain kinds of harmful speech that uh, insults, degrades, or threatens individuals by virtue of their membership in a historically oppressed group. Well, Victor, I want you to jump in on this because I think one, one counterfactual that, that I want to pose to you based on what Jamie said is, is the problem with Weimar Germany that too many people read Mein Kampf or not enough people read Mein Kampf. Because one, you know, one response is that Hitler's ability to code switch to different kinds of audiences allowed him to pull people into his political organization that had they known or had they been paying more attention or actually listening to more of his speech may not have joined it. Or is the problem more what Jamie said, which is that that his you know his ability to publish it, his ability to start spreading this message, is what built the the momentum. I mean, what's the problem for thinking about democratization long term if that's what we're trying to maximize? Is is it, you know we're we're definitely trying not to have another Hitler, but what's the best way to do it with respect to free speech? I think Jamie poses the thorniest and strongest challenge to my thesis, and that keeps me up at night which is what if everybody adopted my position wholesale and took it to the extreme and condoned the ability of unvarnished hate speech as necessary to the American experiment into liberalism, right? And what if, James, you're wrong and in Rwanda, it was a cause and not a symptom? I have to say, I'm not confident enough, I suppose, or strong enough in my convictions to rule that out. That, that, that is the specter that does haunt me. And maybe what Jamie intimates is that free speech itself can figure out the boundaries. And then once we figure out the boundaries, it's okay to use social norms to enforce them and even to use ostracism. The problem, though, is figuring out a process by which we do that and not use, allow actors to subvert that process and use coercion to advance their own self-interest or as a, an expression of power over others. So I, that's above my pay grade, to be honest, what that process would be, where we could come up with boundaries that are reasonable and then police them while still respecting the spirit of free speech. And so, James, I don't know. I, I don't want to be arrogant enough to say in Rwanda, that was a symptom versus a cause, because ultimately, maybe as social scientists, we should try to figure that out. I mean, it, was it the speech as an independent driver, or was it a symptom? You know, that may be a research agenda we could gain some traction on with modern uh, statistical techniques that we have with big data and text analysis, just to put a shot out for what we do here at the University of Washington when it comes to statistics and the like. But for sake of argument, let's say, there are situations where speech itself is the cause. Even if that's the case, as you say, James, maybe one way around hate speech is to be honest about what it says and get it out there so that we can push back against it rather than having it go underground, which is one of the fundamental points of my op-ed. It's just pragmatically, we want to be leery of hate speech, but we don't want to let it go underground because it could get worse. So maybe there's a way to inoculate against it, to have a vaccine against it, to socially sanction it and say, that's not what respectable people do and it is harmful, but let's actually let it come out 
out to daylight so we can use reason and argumentation to push back. Like with Mein Kampf, well, let's show how unequivocally morally bankrupt and objectively wrong it is on all counts. Like its history is wrong, its logic is bad, it's specious, and its conclusions don't follow from its premises. That could actually be a better way to fight hate speech than to censor it to show how utterly terrible it is and, and, and incoherent. But I want to make another point about going too far with the hate speech idea, which allowing it to be really elastic and to start calling things that we previously did not call hate speech as hate speech because we might run the risk of offending someone in ways we couldn't even anticipate actually might undermine the progress we've made towards social, racial justice. Let me give you an example. I think free speech, ironically, is for the weak and not the strong. The strong don't need legal or cultural protections around free speech because they have other instruments to advance their own interests and to consolidate their power and wealth. They don't need protest and dissent as a tool to do this. They don't need to write or have freedom of conscience that's expressed in the ability to write or argue or litigate or march. They're already protected. Their privilege is already secure. It's historically the oppressed who need free speech the most. And there's examples from US history where because their free speech was incomplete, where they couldn't fight against racism and oppression. So Jamie is right on the one hand, maybe hate, hate speech had an independent impact on segregation in the South and racial injustice. But on the other hand, black people didn't have the ability to oppose slavery in the pre-Civil War South or Southwest uh, during the 1850s in Missouri and Kansas, for example. There was no freedom of expression or assembly for African Americans during the Jim Crow era. They didn't have, uh, Native Americans never had freedom of expression or assembly uh, during Western expansion. Freedom of expression and assembly was not afforded to Mexican Americans in Texas during the massacre in Porvenir orchestrated by the Texas Rangers. In the run-up to World War I, there was no tolerance for anti-interventionist views or pacifism. And obviously, during the McCarthy era, uh, there was no tolerance for things perceived to be unorthodox or too leftist, too extreme. And if you think of the Vietnam conflict, history is repeated. Uh, obviously, free speech won. The hippies in their culture, I think, was ascendant and, and was able to win against the reaction against it. But at the beginning, there was persecution against being anti-patriotic and being dissenters against the party line, you know, that uh, Vietnam was important for waging the Cold War because of the domino theory that if it fell, the rest of the world would go afterwards, especially our backyard here in uh, Latin America, when you think of Cuba or you think of Chile under Salvador Allende. So I actually concede Jamie's points, and I don't have an answer for it, but I do think there's an equally powerful statement to be made against not going too far because it might undermine the ability of the oppressed themselves to advance their interests, even if it's well-intentioned to, let's say, stretch what we mean by hate speech and include more and more things, make it more capacious. So even on that count, I worry, even if there is the case that it could have an independent impact on perpetuating oppression. Obviously, this is messy. There's no right answer or clear answer. And, and having this debate itself, I hope, helps, my, helps me make progress on it because I don't have a pat response. I'm going to jump in at this point. This is Mark Smith. I've uh, just been watching. And uh, at this point, uh, I'm a professor of political science, uh, study American domestic politics, especially in the area of religion. I was intending mostly to just uh, watch here, but I do, I do have something to say on, on this point. 
so there, um, there's a lot that was in Victor's remarks and we kind of had a thread from Jamie through James and then the early part of Victor's remarks. The latter part, what, what Victor was talking about in terms of does free speech protect really the, the, the disadvantaged in society because the advantaged have their plenty of means where their interests are already protected so they don't need free speech. That's a really important point. I hope you have a chance to get back to that. Um, I wanted to address the earlier part about the, the thread that I think Jamie introduced about governmental restrictions on hate speech, which are common in many countries that we would consider democratic. They don't exist at a legal, in a legal space in, uh, in the United States. And it strikes me that there actually might be a connection between what's happening right now in terms of cancel culture, which was a lot of what motivated Victor's op-ed in the first place, and the lack of hate speech requirements at a governmental level. And by the way, I'm just I'm just fleshing this out as I speak. I'm 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 not sure I have the right take on this, but I just want to throw out a, a possibility, and I'm curious to get reactions from all of you. So, as I see the cancel culture phenomenon, it seems to be primarily an American phenomenon, to some extent an Anglo-American phenomenon. So you can see it in the UK for sure, Australia, to some extent uh, Canada. You don't really see it going on as much in say, you know, France, Germany, uh, Japan. Meanwhile, those Anglo-American countries are also the ones that have the strongest legal protections on any speech without the, the hate speech restrictions. And maybe there's actually some causal connection between the absence of legal restrictions on hate speech and then the presence of cancel culture. Because if you have a governmental regime where you've set up a system where you define certain things as hate speech and rule those out of bounds, that sort of sets a standard. And then in private discussions, well, there's certain things that are off bounds because they're just illegal. So you kind of take those off the table. And therefore, people feel more comfortable in having open-ended discussions. Whereas in the Anglo-American context, because there's broad legal protections just for saying whatever you want, then it becomes incumbent upon individual actors within businesses, within universities, on social media, and in other places to essentially define what is hate speech and then use social sanctions to restrict it. And as soon as you go down that road, hate speech becomes very subjective because you know, one person's definition will, will differ from someone else's. And someone will just take something, they, a point that they just disagree with, they'll label it as hate speech. They'll then try to get that person you know, fired from, from their job. And they're kind of able to do that because really they have the, there's no legal recourse to um, ha have government to restrict that speech. So you, you have to impose the sanctions through social means. Whereas if you had the possibility of governmental sanctions, then people wouldn't necessarily feel the need to do that. And you could, you could kind of defer that the definitional quality of, of hate speech um, to the legal realm. It, it's always going to be a slippery term. We, we should acknowledge that at the outset. But at least if you do it at the governmental level, you have some chance to, to refine some standards over time and hopefully rule out things like, you know, demonizing entire groups as cockroaches, as other kinds of, of, uh, of speech that would target particular groups, that if you rule those out at the governmental level, then at the private level, maybe discussions can be more open-ended. So that's the basic thesis I wanna put on the table, that actually the absence of hate speech regulations at a legal level is part of what's driving the cancel culture in the, Ameri the Anglo-American context. Can I jump in? I know, I mean, I know other people have things to say, but... Uh... Uh, I, I find, this is Jamie again, I find Mark's suggestion plausible 
because one of the things that strikes me about the United States is that there really is a very strong social norm against hate speech. It's imperfectly, uh, perfectly applied. Some very powerful people engage in hate speech, such as our president. But nonetheless, I mean, I think there's, you know, speaking generally, there's a strong social norm against hate speech. And it's so strong um, that you see public officials applying that norm. So for example, you see Congress passing resolutions condemning hate speech uh, or anti-Semitic speech. And to me, that's really interesting because, you know, the same politicians who say you should, are proud of the, the legal, the US legal regime of very uh, broad freedom of speech, which allows people legally speaking to, to engage in hate speech, will feel obligated to publicly denounce hate speech. So here's just one example. Um, uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar on a couple of occasions said things that were accused of being anti-Semitic. I think there's an interesting debate about whether everything she said was anti-Semitic. I have views about that. Nonetheless, there's widespread condemnation of certain things she said. And uh, the House of Representatives, and I think, uh, I can't remember the Senate as well, passed a resolution condemning anti-Semitism and other forms of hate speech shortly after her remarks. That was clearly a very public <laughs> rebuke against Ilhan Omar. And so I think that's, um, that in, in a weird way, maybe a kind of a, a, an example of what Mark is talking about. Susan or Brian, do you want to come in on this? One thread that I pick up uh, that kind of helped us to uh, organize the thought and the themes that we have brought up so far. It's like in the case of authoritarian countries such as China and Hong Kong or Venezuela and Mexican for that purpose, is that the speech or the damage that is done is being divided against the state or public power, right? So speech is be being regulated on the basis that it harmed the state, the public power, the country, the nation, whatever, right? In very thick term. But in the US context where we have a relatively free and well-developed democracy, it seems like the target of the harm is much more about interracial, inter-social groups or directed against citizens and one another, right? So it seems to me, might be the consensus is that, you know, we should not regulate speech that was like uh, prohibited on the basis of damaging the state or, you know, doing harm against the nation. But when it comes to social relationship, I think the distinction should be made, right? Should we regulate inter-social group dialogue uh, when it comes to harms and, you know, detrimental effect that we do not intend, right? So it seems to me the authoritarian case is kind of distinct from the, the context of the U.S., if that makes sense. Susan, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I think I was thinking about Mark's engagement with Victor on, on cancel culture, and cancel culture occurs in a lot of arenas and around a lot of areas, and hate speech is one subset of that, but cancel culture is bigger. And I think it exists everywhere. And I would that, and it was Mark's hypothesis that the lack of a definition of hate speech is what drives cancel culture. Was getting me thinking, like, but but I think cancel culture exists around lots of different issues, not necessarily just like racial injustice, for example, but national identity, things like that. Um, we certainly see examples of of cancel culture in in China around um, national discourse. And so is it something other than the definition of hate speech, right? Is it something about the medium? And, and we started early on talking about social media and we haven't explored that new kind of mode of communication and, um, and the role that that technology has perhaps the form to affect the content. So, so that was a question I wanted to put out there. And then uh, just picking up on what Brian said, I think it, it's um, hard to separate 
our understanding of harms and the harms caused and how they're defined uh, from the way to address them. And, and one thing we haven't really also teased out is this idea of the counter speech and the possibility of effective counter speech. And, and again, I see that on a continuum from like um, a, a kind of classical liberal perspective where I think counter speech is almost assumed to be possible and effective to authoritarian context where counter speech is systematically repressed and, and there's a political structure there that limits counter speech. But there are other kinds of structures that can also counter limit counter speech. So my, my first query to the group is about, okay, what about the form of social media? And then second, possibility of counter speech. Well, Susan, can you say what you mean by counter speech? Yeah, so I think in painting groups with this uh, broad brush of condemnation, criticism, racist speech, for example, counter speech would be to raise a voice that says, no, that's, um, that's just groundless, ascriptive condemnation of an entire group of people, right, that has no foundation. And, and so I think the idea, if we go back to Victor's, um, the ideal that he's putting forward in his op-ed is the public sphere allows for bad ideas, for wrong ideas to be challenged effectively and set aside, right? That certain things become resolved and understood and then society can move forward. So for that to happen, counter speech has to be able to occur to challenge, it's the speech that challenges ideas that are morally, factually wrong and, and wrong in a whole range of ways, right? So, so that's what I mean by counter speech. Well, and I, I had a question building on this, Susan, for Mark, on the just the double standard nature of the cases that you mentioned, not in the Anglo-American sphere, which is that the restrictions on hate speech with respect to anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial in France don't seem to apply to Islamophobia. And, you know, all manner of French, you know, French people in public life or, or you know, political parties and politicians have said things that are extremely Islamophobic. In, in things about which you could not say about, about Jews. Now, obviously, France has a different history with Jew, Jewish populations than it does with Muslim populations, and, and they may be distinct with respect to that, but why are they treated differently with respect to the law if we want to allow democracies, you know, outside the Anglo-American, if we want to give them the ability to basically restrict certain things, what happens when there's a new form of hate speech that comes up that hasn't been legislated on? Who decides whether or not it's okay to say things that are Islamophobic or not in ways that are, are similar to saying things that are anti-Semitic? So we, you know, James, thanks for that uh, comment. I mean, we may have a factual disagreement about France because I think there are cases where people have been prosecuted in France for speech that is anti-Muslim. Uh, Brigitte Bardot is a famous case, the French actress and animal rights activist who said some publicly insulting things about Islam. Of course, the trouble in, you know, in the case of France is that when you look at the way in which the laws are applied, people will make the case that the laws are applied inconsistently. Uh, and so maybe that's, that's, um, maybe that's what you are saying. And there, there it's tricky. I do worry that, you know, by the... <laughs> I worry, for example, that the, the French president recently pronounced that anti-Zionism was anti-Semitism. And that's because I, you know, as a theoretical matter, I don't think that's true. I think they're theoretically different. Certainly anti-Semitism can often use the cloak of anti-Zionism, but their anti-Zionism doesn't have to be anti-Semitism. And it's worrying in a country, and here's where the slippery slope problem does emerge. I mean, in a country where anti-Semitism can be punished, saying that anti-Zionism is per se anti-Semitism then of course is 
is worrying. Victor or Brian, do you want to jump in on the question of, of technology? Or Mark, do you want to jump in on technology or the questions that Susan posed? I could say something, but others want to go first. I, I, do, I, would love. I think talking about technology would be really good. Well, to steal a page from your book, James, is it a cause or a symptom? One thesis is that the medium is the message and that the technology is warping the content of the speech and it's amplifying the most extreme voices and those that are most hateful, and perhaps even spreading them through a contagion effect, right? It's contagious. So it could be that it's not really a speech issue, it's a technology issue, and if we were to just regulate or even ban certain types of technology, I wouldn't have to write this op-ed because we would just figure out a way to go back to a liberal consensus where we respect free speech and things that are egregiously out of bounds don't ever happen because people don't have that crazy Twitter finger going off where they don't interrupt their thoughts with deliberation or further reflection. They just spew whatever, they, they shoot from the hip. They spew whatever their gut tells them or they're following cues of demagogues like President Trump, right? And, and it's all due to the technology or Facebook or conspiracy theories that are spreading through that medium. There's an alternative thesis though, that it isn't the technology, that it's the erosion and emasculation of our civic culture, of mutual tolerance, of respect, of forbearance. And the technology is epiphenomenal or, or it's just mirroring or maybe amplifying, but in a sense, reflecting an underlying rot. I don't know the answer, but I often wonder if the technology is a distraction, that that's not a panacea. I think you're conflating two separate things. And, I, and Brian, I'd like to hear your experience on this. I think technology obviously can be used as a way to mobilize, okay, in ways that are positive and negative. But technology is, Victor, what you're talking about is also technology as a way to learn. I mean, learn about the Holocaust, learn about John Stuart Mill, learn about what actually happened, blah, blah, blah. And if you use Twitter to learn about the facts of something which is fairly complicated and, and needs to take place over you know, more than 240 characters, Twitter then being the place where you're learning the thing that it takes longer than that to learn it, I think is a problem. But I think that is separate from technology being used as a tool that helps people to mobilize in positive ways, probably like Brian and, and his colleagues in Hong Kong, or you know, as, as a mobilizing effect in negative ways, Garibalds or, or radio in Rwanda. I'm thinking, I, I like uh, Susan's idea, I wanna tie it in, uh, the idea of counter speech. I think it's like, does the structure, be it political, technological or social, does it allow the victims of, or, or the target of a particular speech to come back and have their chance to kind of say publicly, defend themselves? I'm thinking about the cases of victims of sexual harassment uh, whereas in previous society, they might not have the opportunity. Or even if they have to go through the judicial system of going to court, like giving a testimony to police, to them, it's not a real chance for them to communicate their, their trauma or their experience. And what social media does is like it provides a public platform where the experience could be shared, maybe anonymously, maybe publicly, and be resonate around the world, right? So I think it gave, it empowers certain disenfranchised groups to be able to speak up and counter 
the dominant rhetoric, if you will, right? So I, I see the potential for emancipation in that realm. And, you know, it obviously it goes to politi politically repressive group, right? Such as people fighting for freedom in authoritarian country, right? So to me, again, I echo James, what James says. It's really a double-edged sword, or it's neutral in the sense it amplifies what people want to say and give people a chance to say what they might not be previously allowed to do so, right? I think social media is a problem. So it may be a double-edged sword, but we have to worry about the, the, you know, the bad edge. Uh, we had an honor student in our department write a really brilliant thesis. It was supervised by Susan, I think, about the role of Facebook in mobilizing persecution of Rohingya people in Myanmar. Um, and a lot of, you know, there's a lot of research on um, the really sinister uh, uses of social media. So it's in that context, it's really important that so some of these plat and these platforms do restrict speech, maybe imperfectly, but you know, officially, I believe. Uh, I think Mark knows more about this, and, and I'm, I'm, ge I'm guessing all of you know more about this than I do. But the major platforms do do restrict do restrict the content the content of of, the, of what can be shared on their platforms, and invest a lot of time. Uh, and, and work into uh, excluding dangerous content. And um, it would be really scary, I think, if they didn't do that. Well, um, this is Mark again. I'm not an expert on this, this, this either. My understanding is that there's been a lot of pressure on the social media companies to, to restrict things that would be classified as hate speech, but they've been very resistant to, to, uh, to doing that. Most famously, Facebook has tried to take the stance of, hey, we're just a forum and you know, let all flowers bloom and, um, you know, let the, let the marketplace sort it out. We're not going to try to re restrict speech. That, that's been their take for, you know, the, the, the last several years. And it, that's precisely why the persecution of the Rohingya through Facebook was in, in Burma was allowed to take place was because there really wasn't much restrictions on, on, on speech. But in the last year or so, they have started to move more in the direction of we're going to start restricting things. Um, Twitter, I mean, it's kind of all into the uh, problem of misinformation and Twitter is going to start to not necessarily block things, but maybe attach other um, information to it. This has been a, a real matter of, of controversy with, with regard to COVID-19, where they have, um, you know, I think YouTube especially has, has taken down things that, that um, were, they thought was a public health threat because it was violating explicit, you know, claims that had been put forward by the, the Centers for Disease Control domestically, the CDC or the World Health Organization, WHO, internationally. So there, I think we're, we're moving toward a realm where there are going to be more restrictions on content from the social media providers, but it's a huge matter of controversy where a lot, of, a lot of people on the right end of the spectrum, they think that restrictions on hate speech is a cynical way to just start blocking conservative speech of all kinds. They think that it's a, it's a fig leaf for knocking them off. And of course, because the social media platforms, they want conservatives to buy in. They don't really want to alienate conservatives. So that's been part of, the, part of the dynamic of them resisting the call to restrict hate speech on their platforms. But you know, it's 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 a matter of a current fight, and so I think the debate has moved more toward having some restrictions, but it really hasn't gone very far. And so I think, as of right now, the social media platforms are pretty open, and you can say a whole lot of stuff on there. Um, I guess you have the example of you know Alex Jones being banned from YouTube, but then uh, the other platforms followed thereafter. Now that was that about hate speech, or was that about uh, you know conspiracy theories? Um, I mean, they kind of blend together at, at, at some point. So we are moving toward more restrictions, but I 
think the, the regimes overall right now is still pretty, pretty open. And um, it's just a matter of continuing debate. Susan, do you have a, a response on your question that you would like to include? I think this is a really naughty area. So I think uh, it's challenging in part because one thing that free speech can contribute to is the expression of shared public standards. And, you know, so who is setting the standards? Is that an authoritarian government, for example? Is it a massive private corporation? So I, I think these are really naughty issues. Uh, another challenge that was articulated was the inability to really reason in 240 characters, right? So yeah, I think it takes us back to the idea of um, counter speech, who is empowered, who has a platform, how to come to um, shared public standards, which is something I think that Victor also alluded to in his op-ed to, to take us back to the, our um, starting point. But yeah, thanks for a very enlightening discussion, everybody. Great, so do we just want to do a quick roundup of everyone's last words? Okay, why don't we, Brian, why don't we start with you? I think I really enjoyed the conversation and my reflection on the whole topic of freedom of speech is really that freedom is like a category of practice where you kind of practice your right and freedom and sometimes we have to negotiate a boundary and sometimes we have to accept the fact that we might transgress them sometimes, right? To me, it's the price we have to pay for freedom that sometimes we might have, like we have to be wrong or sometimes we might have cross the line and we have to come up with ways to reconcile that or kind of rem with some remedy to you know undo the harm we have done right so to me it's really about negotiating the boundary figure out the appropriate comfortable boundary of freedom of speech uh, maybe it's a endless debate that we have to engage in and kind of gauge constantly as a society you know for society as a whole so to me uh, freedom is always a practice not a really a, a something that can be defined on paper Great, thanks, Brian. Uh, Mark, do you have a few closing thoughts? Sure, I'll just link back to, to Victor's op-ed, which was in the Seattle Times um, a, a week or so ago. And I, uh, anyone listening, um, go read it now. It's, it's, it's a brilliant piece and I um, am, am fully in agreement with it. Would just like to make one point that I think is consistent with what, what Victor said. And like Victor, I'm, I'm uh, in support of a, a broad space for people to examine ideas, whether you call that free speech or whether you call that engagement, or whether you call that having a public sphere, or, you know, whatever. Um, that's our mechanism to figure out what's true, what's right, and we have to be open to those discussions and open to revising our, our views. And a key problem right now is so many people are so confident in their views that they don't want to engage anybody else. They want to just quickly defer to, you know, shutting down those that they, that they disagree with as like their you know, go-to um, strategy. And that's, that, that's, the problem in, the, in the, the, the current regime, the way things are operating right now. And so um, I think this is more of a, a cultural matter than a legal matter, as, as we've talked about, and that we've, we've kind of lost the culture of engagement. And I think this is linked to so many people being so confident in their own views that they don't think they need to engage anybody else because they've already got the truth. And so more, more humility. Uh, it, it's interesting, the schools right now, they're kind of teaching the opposite of humility. There are all these messages that kids get. You know, you're special, you're wonderful, you're perfect. Um, every kid gets a trophy. There, there's that kind of mentality. And then as people age, I think you eventually reach a point where people are just, they're really confident in their beliefs and they're, they're not really in a space where they're uh, prepared to say that they're wrong and that they need, they have something to learn that they need to always revisit their views to make sure that things that they used to believe that they, that they still believe and so on. Um, and so it's that, that, cultural push toward humility that I think is really lacking right now. And, and I think that that's consistent with what Victor was, was saying and that that cultural 
sphere of humility is precisely what leads to the engagement, which then leads to us engaging ideas and trying to ferret out about what's true and what, what's not true. I think all, all kind of building on Victor's basic points. Great, thank you, Mark. Jamie? Sure, thank you. Uh, first, I wanna thank Victor for writing the op-ed that uh, started this discussion. And uh, like Mark, I, I recommend it to everyone. And I wanna thank everyone for this conversation today, which I found really uh, uh, informative and helpful, and I learned from it. I just want to give a shout out to an article that you can find on the internet by the Danish philosopher Magnus Vinding, uh, and it's called Compassionate Free Speech, where he makes a, a really intriguing argument that we should uphold the value of free speech and minimize both legal and social restrictions on free speech but also take very seriously our, our responsibility or take very seriously our duty to, to exercise uh, speech responsibly. Again, thank you, everybody. Great, thanks, Jamie. Uh, Victor, any last words? Yeah, I guess, you know, I really wanna echo what Mark ended us with. As usual, he said things better than, than I did. I actually, I wish some of the language he used, I could have used in my op-ed because it, I just had an epiphany. I'll take what he said and I'll add a few points. There's nothing wrong with liberalism that liberalism can't solve, that more liberalism can't solve. And maybe what we're finding out is there's shortcomings to the liberal experiment. But to me, the solution is more liberalism to those shortcomings. And the shortcomings, to go back to the technology thing, the point I was trying to make is technology, the digital platforms have democratized free speech and liberalism in that everyone gets to express themselves now. And maybe there are perverse incentives to do things that are not the best for advancing the liberal project of deliberation and reason and finding common ground. And, and, and maybe there are incentives to be a troll or to be a hyperbolist or to be a demagogue, but more liberalism can help that, not less, I feel. And more liberalism means maybe perfecting free speech and improving it and to me, this goes back to the cause versus symptoms. The cause, I think, is that we've, our civic culture has atrophied and that we've lost sight of how to practice free speech responsibly. And to me, it goes back to respect and tolerance and cherishing each other as human beings that deserve to think for ourselves and to be heard and be respected. Even if we make a mistake and say the wrong thing at first, that we deserve to have the benefit of the doubt afforded to us. And if we could make our civic culture healthier, I think some of these problems wouldn't even happen in the first place and, and the cancel culture stuff would be less frequent. And so what do I mean by that? Democracy requires thick skinned debaters. And that means accountability. And accountability means I'm not comfortable or confident in my beliefs just because they seem right. It is the humility Mark mentioned. It's the fact that I'm open to being pushed back against and being criticized. And this is something that's beautiful about the American university and that I sometimes fear we could lose. It's this open-ended, I'm open to be criticized and I want to be criticized. I want my peers to point out when my assumptions are flawed or my reasoning is specious or my evidence is spurious. And I think as citizens, we need that too. And the university has a role in inculcating those virtues. If I had my druthers, every act of offense or prejudice would be an opportunity for debate. And that's coming from someone, I'm an ethnic minority from a uh, historically marginalized group. 
as I said, my heritage in terms of my parents, immigrants who came to this country and had a hard time. My dad suffered a lot of discrimination. He couldn't speak English well. He was dark, funny looking to some people. This was the 70s where there weren't many immigrants in New York uh, where he lived on Long Island. Part of the reason we moved to Mexico was because he didn't like the way he was treated by some people. But he never told us to abandon or question the American experiment that he was still attracted to even while overseas. And it is a beacon. It is an ideal. And yes, we fall short because we're flawed. Of course we do. And sometimes our worst instincts take over. And But at the end of the day, I think what's to blame is not liberalism. It's not free expression. It's not freedom of conscience or freedom of assembly or to or protest. It's that sometimes bad actors do infect other people. And sometimes there are cross-cutting incentives that reward things that are hateful and that are prejudiced. And sometimes there are structural inequities and we so want to get rid of them that maybe we might even experiment with experiment with things that are not in the liberal tradition, um, like really, really thick versions of hate speech that go beyond just hateful words and and chastise ideas that might even cause umbrage or offense. But my final thought would be that's dangerous because again, to get rid of oppression or, or to make progress, we need thick skin as well and we need to be held accountable. And the culture, cancel culture we might promote one day to fight against things that offend us or that we don't like might come back to haunt us the next day if we need to voice something unpopular that we don't even suspect will be unpopular tomorrow. And so even if it seems right and noble, and even if it seems like we're advancing noble ends by canceling certain ideas, we should question whether that's the last case scenario and whether there's other things that are just commonsensical that we can use first to enlighten folks that make mistakes or to say things that are hateful and to allow them to make progress and to, um, improved too. And by being teachers when we're offended or when things don't seem right or are just wrong, we improve ourselves too. So the teaching and learning thing about humility is bilateral. And you'll learn new things when you hear out people that say things that are offensive and you have the opportunity to push back as Susan called it, counter speech. I think that's so important. And, and that's part of the liberal tradition as well. And so I just hope that, you know, we've been through a really hard time with the Trump administration in terms of questioning what liberal democracy is about or reckoning with racial justice and thinking about public health in ways we hadn't before and the virtues of science and uh, the importance of uh, protest and the importance of the opposition to threats to our underlying values. And so maybe it's okay that we're having this moment where maybe there is a little bit too much of cancel culture, but what we might ultimately learn is that there are limits to that as well, and that we'll negotiate new boundaries, and we won't actually have to go through bullying and harassing and firing people who say things that we don't agree with, because we'll be a better society after uh, this experience, and we'll renegotiate and strengthen some of this civic culture that we, I think, ultimately need to strengthen and ultimately might be responsible for some of these problems. And so I really appreciate everybody's thoughts on this. And so much was left on the cutting room floor with this op-ed. And you guys helped me really think about things in new and productive ways. And I almost wish I could write the op-ed over and make it better. 
uh, after this conversation. So I really value what you guys have said. And I think it's the best embodiment of the culture of free speech and liberalism. And um, thank you so much. And thanks, James, for organizing this. And you're really a valuable role as moderator. Great. Thank you, Victor. Uh, I think that's a great place to end it. And certainly many more conversations and op-eds to, to be had and written on this subject. So thank you all again for joining us. And we'll talk to you next time.